They started out a generation ago as simple black and white tennis games on a TV screen. Today's video games are vivid, sophisticated and fast moving, driven by state of the art computer software featuring the latest in high tech graphics. Welcome back to Furudashi Pod. My name is Lauren. I am here with Nicholas. And today we're going to talk a little bit more about the core game loop. And I'm going to throw that over to Nicholas so he can give you a nice brief TLDR uh, from his show rant. Uh, yeah. So for those of you who are listening to have listened to last week's episode, it may actually be worth going back and listening to that one first, although I will recap it a little bit. Um, so in last week's chill rant, I talked a lot about, I made a critique of the the concept in video game design of the core gameplay loop. And there I sort of ended, okay, I'll, I'll go through it real quickly. So first I talked about like what a critique actually is, which is to say that it's not this like negative, like tearing down of something. In fact, it's actually just a systematic examination. Um, I also talked about what the core gameplay loop is, this concept of like this sort of feedback loop of like action response and then anticipation for the next action response, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I'm not super fond of that way of thinking about it, but I like to use other people's terms so that way we're all on the same page. So then the fundamental as the fundamentals of the critique were that when you look at actual games, it's not really a loop. It's more like, I believe I use the term helix, in that like if you look at it sort of two-dimensionally, it will look like a circle. It will look like a loop. But the thing is, you actually have to sort of think about the third dimension, which is sort of the progressive aspect of gameplay, and that each time you come back to sort of like the next action, sort of like the moment before the next action, you're not actually at the same point you were before. And so that progressive element is not something that is sort of like tacked on afterwards. The progressive element is actually there in the core gameplay loop itself. And it's it's what makes the core gameplay loop fun and not like a tedious grind. Because if it were actually a loop, if you were repeating the same thing over and over again, that would be kind of boring. <laughs> and so today we wanted to talk about not that, but sort of like the problem of compartmentalization in game design, because like those two aspects, like the progressive aspect, which could be narrative or it could be procedural generation, it could be a whole bunch of different or level design, it could be a whole bunch of different things. But those that aspect of game design is often compartmentalized from like, say, core combat mechanics. So, Lauren, talk a little bit about that and your experience with sort of like how those things don't communicate with each other. Yeah, it's actually really fascinating because when we started talking about this kind of off the recording, I really liked the use of the word helix because whenever I look at my own game design, I actually like to say things are loops of loops, which yeah. is maybe a little bit more easily identifiable on like a whiteboard. Like you can draw a loop that 
leads into another. Yeah, because a, a, a whiteboard is a two-dimensional space. Because a whiteboard like, well, is says, a two-dimensional space. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, no, and you're brainstorming. Um, <laughs> and we can actually go back to office. So you're brainstorming, you're drawing on a whiteboard, right? Yeah, yeah. And you can be like, okay, loop, loop, loop. But yeah. you know, to Nicholas's point, it is much more of a helix. And what you get in professional game development is someone taking a part of that loop or cutting off like right a little bit of that game's DNA yeah. and giving it out to say an animator or to someone doing core combat. Yep. And when you look at core combat, it could be something like in um, Doom Eternal is my favorite example because it's very easy. You run and you gun, right? And, yep. and you kill. Yep. And there are, at the end of the day, even if you have different weapons or different skills, right? You're running and gunning. And in Doom, the, the most recent one, you have that melee kill, right? That gives you health yeah. back. Yeah. Now, when you compartmentalize in AAA production, honestly, that this is kind of, I go back and forth. It's good and it's bad. If someone's in charge of, say, that core yeah. combat, you as a designer have to realize that as core combat means not just the running and the gunning, but also how does getting health back from a melee kill lead into the entire core combat of that loop and actually Precisely, getting yeah. into progression. Yep. Versus when you go into a production schedule, it really is going to look like someone is working on all of the weapons and that designer is only focused on the weapons. Yep. Someone is going to be working on character, so they're going to be focused on all of the enemies of that game. But then if they're not the enemy designer, right, and the enemy character artists aren't communicating to the weapons designer or the weapon artists, right, and they're not talking to the core combat designer who's in charge of character movement, right, in that first person camera control, well, yeah. then suddenly you're not going to have a great experience, right, because yeah. you've compartmentalized it too much. And we talk a lot about uh, games in our podcast that sometimes feel a little disjointed or maybe yeah. as a better example, right? You have a character artist, but if the character artist isn't talking to the environment artist, right? Now your environment's not going to match your core combat. Yep. And so really when AAA breaks down, it, it does break down in the compartmentalization of how tasks get distributed to different designers. And there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, I love AI design, yeah. but I wouldn't necessarily want to work on enemy design because AI enemies uh, are just <laughs> a part of like artificial intelligence. Like you can do yeah. a lot more with AI yeah, than yeah. just create enemies. Yeah. Um, and I think that, right, the an environment artist isn't going to want to make characters because they've trained and they really like environments, yeah, right? Yeah. Um, a level designer isn't going to necessarily want to be a combat designer. I mean, but I don't necessarily... Okay, so <laughs> what if hapless level designer actually does want to, to do like, you know, character design? What if hapless level designer does want to be more involved in, you know, core combat mechanics? The problem is like the production process itself doesn't really allow for them to do it or like it has to be tacked on like after the fact. Yeah, and I think that that's the biggest problem in, I don't know, producing AAA games right now is that hapless level designer wants to be involved in those conversations, but a hapless level designer isn't responsible for the work that those conversations yeah, output, yeah, yeah. right? So for example, a core combat designer has to be aware that core combat isn't just shooting and running and gunning, right? Yeah, yeah. Core combat is actually about how does the environment, right? How do you shoot up the environment? maybe, right? Or if the environment yeah. doesn't respond to your bullets for maybe a production reason, well, then how do those bullets translate to the enemy designer, right? It's all about communication. And that's when I talked about, like, that's why I talk about the process breaking down. Yeah. Is that if we compartmentalize everybody into you are only responsible for core combat, right? Whatever that means. Yeah. Or you're only responsible for weapons or hapless level designer is only responsible for the hapless levels. <laughs> well, then 
No, no, the the levels aren't hapless. The designer is hapless. No, the the designer is hapless, right? What I'm arguing is that the levels will become hapless because now he's like, I don't understand why the level needs to be this way. So then he'll have someone that is a manager going, how could you even make a level a square? Like it needs to have the floor is lava mechanics here and it needs to have the... (laughs) You know, a central column for players to dance around. And the level designer is not going to produce good work if yeah. he's not a part of those conversations. And so that's yeah. kind of what I wanted to talk about with the, or at least how I wanted to wrap up, right? The AAA uh, designer, like, production philosophy there, right? Is that this compartmentalization of game loops that you went into in your chill rant, right? And yeah. how that compartmentalization can lead to the grind and lead into just your repeating because you ended up back where you started. Yeah. It's kind of how it is in production as well. Like when you finish a feature, the feature goes back to zero because you're working on another feature and now you're just grinding and grinding out. So now that's very interesting to me because that's something I didn't know is how in many ways, like the core gameplay loop actually like reflects what the designer is doing. Like the designer is stuck in a core game. Yeah. No, that that's I the think core design I'm... loop. The CDL. <laughs> it's the CDL. It's the core design loop. No, it is. And I think that that's what's hilarious is I don't know who tweeted it, but someone said every game that comes out is really just a reflection of the designer's mentality and their <laughs> philosophy of right of them coming, yeah, yeah. like creating that game. And when yeah. you look at a game like Journey, the game designer like Genova Chan specifically said that. He yeah. was like, this is about the game design process. <laughs> so you I think it's it, about death and rebirth. No, it's actually about how much it sucked to make this game. <laughs> yeah, which honestly is like death and rebirth. You're like, I died to give life to this. But in giving it life, I realized that I myself found new life. And you're like, oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> I apologize. Yeah, but, you know, when, so when you have a fun game that comes out, or if the game is a reflection of that core design loop, right yeah. instead of the core game loop yeah. then then how how does that actually reflect it i don't know it's very interesting okay well actually let's riff on this a little bit so if the core gameplay loop is actually helix that means the core design loop is also a helix assuming that you know they ha- they are analogs of each other assuming assuming and so i think what we're trying to point out here is that like if the production process in its own system of progression moving like say from like you know milestone to milestone or like from the perspective of say like the individual designer like working on a feature completing it having it compile and so forth working on the next feature the next feature and so forth that if you're only looking at it, say, as a designer, if you're like, let's say, okay, hapless level designer, I'm going to inhabit the persona of hapless level designer. If you're looking at it solely from the perspective of like your own production process, like, okay, so I sit down with some like pen and paper and I want to think about this level in this, say, like hypothetical first person shooter. And it, I have all sorts of like I have, you know, destructible terrain and I've got all sorts of like really interesting like parkour things that I want to do with it. And then your Man, this is already like a 10 million budget dollar game. Here. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I realized that I've already terrain and parkour. Yeah, like, and parkour. I was like, wait a minute. Wait <laughs> like, a minute. This is a quad A game that I'm already hypothesizing in my head. Anyway, the point is, is that sort of like the designer. So the level designer has already like done their job of sort of like hypothesizing how these things would interact. Because, like, the thing is, like, parkour and destructible terrain would interact with each other. Like, because you have options. You can either, like, move through the terrain using, say, like, jump stashes and various other movement features. Or you can use, like, effects from, say, your weapons to destroy those things to get around them. But then you run into an interesting problem because 
the, the person who's responsible for like designing the destructible like objects in the game is not going to be the person who is responsible for designing like the weapon systems in the game. Like those people already don't interact with each other. And then you as the hapless level designer don't necessarily interact with these people. Then it's also possible that your lead or your senior is going to come along and say like, wait, wait a minute. Or as you were saying earlier, like, the, oh, no, actually, there needed to be a bunch of lava in this level because, you know, we're going to we're having this really cool jump mechanic. And you're like, I didn't know the jump mechanic existed. <laughs> and now a jump mechanic is really straight like rocket jump. Actually, rocket jump is a perfect example of this because it, it exists purely by accident. Because the thing is, Rocket Jump as a concept within first-person shooters wasn't designed. It was discovered. Yes, and it, now could you actually talk yeah. about the discovery of the Rocket Jump? I just want everyone yeah. here to, you know, all, all the youth out there yeah, yeah. Flash, <laughs> and, or my parents, right? This is just a <laughs> generation yeah, yeah, of yeah. youth and parents. Because I'm the one on the on the recording who's four thousand years old. I want to talk to you about an ancient game called Quake. <laughs> an ancient game called Quake. I was like, you're gonna say Quake, but I was like, look yeah. now. In Quake, the 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 rocket launcher, like its explosion has a secondary knockback effect. But the knockback effect is really interesting because it doesn't just move you laterally; it also moves you vertically as well. And so a lot of really so when and Quake is really you know important in the multiplayer scene. Quake is really sort of what was used to be considered the like top tier like like multi like PvP first person shooter, much more so than say like Unreal Tournament, although that's changed over time. And so the thing is, one of the tactics that really high level players figured out is that they could move more effectively through spaces, especially reaching parts of levels that you wouldn't otherwise be able to reach by aiming the rocket launcher directly at your feet so that it propelled you into the air so that you could jump much higher than like the built-in jump mechanic was. And so that's the thing. It's like it was actually the players who discovered this like accident, but then this accident becomes a primary feature of basically all, not all, but most first-person shooters that came afterwards. And that has huge ramifications for level design, but it's a function of the gun. It's a function of the rocket launcher. And yeah. its effects. And it was that discovery that players made, right, to get into parts of the levels that the level designers themselves never use the weapons that way, right? Nope. And yep. that is why QA is so important for finding <laughs> all the edge cases and that you should always respect your QA testers <laughs> and QA leads. Okay. Now I'm that I'm I'm never off that soapbox. <laughs> I know you're clear. not. I know you're not. <laughs> um, I don't even I never actually came from QA, but I Someone who finds bugs consistently and breaks the game constantly. Yes. Uh, <laughs> you have much love for QA. I have much love for QA because if I didn't find my bug, oh boy. <laughs> right? And I think that for me, that's what's really, in, that's what's incredible is that even back uh, when you could say teams were smaller and budgets were smaller and it was the wonderful world, golden age of game development, blah, 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 nostalgia, and his client, okay, blah, whatever. blah. Yeah, sure, whatever. Yeah, whatever. Um. You didn't have one level designer and one weapon designer talking to each other. I mean, what were they doing? They were sitting next to each other like, haha, this is fun. Oh, yeah, well, I hope that you tune that down so it doesn't go in the game. <laughs> I'm the level designer and my levels will break. And that weapon designer was just like, yeah, bro, that's, yeah, I'll tune it down. Tunes it up. Like, is that what happened? I don't know. I'm not going to yeah. say that's what happened. It was, was it Quake developers were in Texas, right? So I'm just like uh, channeling let me, my... Let me, let me look it up real quick. Uh, GT, no, GT published it. Oh, it was the fame. Oh, so um, this is much to my shame. It's 
It's ID software. No, id software. It 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 is in Texas. <laughs> it is totally in Texas. So good. My okay, options yeah. were perfect. You were correct. I was correct. Hundred percent a dude bro conversation happening in Texas. And man, if I actually secretly know people that worked on Quake, I <laughs> take none of it back. And that's exactly what happened. All right. So now that we've gotten that out of the way as well. I, I think that that's just like, that's so incredible to me is that nowadays, I do think that the production philosophies of game design production are changing, right? Yeah. I do think that people, especially in my workplace, understand that people need don't need to be in every conversation, yeah. but there are ones that you should be aware are happening, especially in design land. Yeah. So for example, you know, for a lot of my work, I, I'm not a core combat designer, whatever core combat means, Right. Yeah, yeah. Um, or whatever I'm, whatever we're working on in our in our game, right? I'm not a part of like some conversations. Yeah, I'm in parts of other conversations, right? I don't have to be in every conversation, but sometimes someone will say something, and I will go, you know, ding ding ding, ding that scratches my like. I feel like I should be there. You know, honestly, fifty percent of the time I get there, and I'm like, eh, okay, the way that was worded was wrong. I don't really need to be here. I I, I should leave, right? <laughs> yeah. But. A lot of the times I'm like, oh, I'm glad that I was here because, you know, even though this isn't my responsibility, it's not what I'm going to be working on. I'm not in any way, shape or form truly like impacted by this. Yeah. I was like, I did need to be here. Here's what I need to say because this hasn't been said and this is going to impact like the level or it's going to impact the environment or it's going to impact, I don't know, core combat or right. Like these are all examples. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so it's going to impact something that people are like, oh, you know, I didn't think about that. And then done. My job is done as, you know, hapless level designer. Um, I'm not a level designer. Thank God. Sorry. It's just I love level design and I would love to do my own level design. But <laughs> we have so many much better level designers. that I'm like, <laughs> I hold nothing to you. Well, that, and that's the thing is that like the you could come away from our conversation saying like, well, are, are they actually saying then that like everybody should work on everything? And the answer to that is no. The answer is to recognize that you work in a process that is fundamentally a function of like collective labor. And so that means that part of your labor is not just like doing the mechanical tasks that you do. It's not just like, you know, putting objects within a particular environment, designing sizes, like level. It, it, it's not just that. Or like, you know, so the explosion. Fixing radius. collision. Yeah, doing collision. Ledge like, markup. Yeah, like or all like the pathing. other things, all the sexy things that I've done, you know, <laughs> putting down yeah. nodes so that NPCs know where to go. Like. But it's also being with other, like, it's the social dynamic. It's being with other people, communicating with them, understanding what. So actually, I'm going to explain explain this using since i recently watched the the two-part nhk documentary about uh the creation of the most recent uh evangelion films neon genesis evangelion and it's specifically focused on um ano hideaki who is the the director of the of the four films and something that comes up over and over and over again from his team members is their frustration with not really knowing what the direction of like the so the, rec the, the documentary itself is focused on the production of the fourth film, although it refers to the others. And it's supposed to be the final film. It's the culminating one. It's the one that's going to finally end the end of the end of the end of Evangelion. But the, the individual team members are like, I just, we don't, we, we produce something and then we'll show it to him. And he just goes, no. And then we'll produce another thing and we'll show it to him and he'll go, no. And so they have no sense of like the, the individual things that they produce like compartmentally. So their core design loops, I mean, they're animators, but animation 
the production of it's, animation it's a design. Is, very, it's a design. is very similar to the production of video games. And so the thing is, like, the thing that they produce in its microcosm seems really good. But then because they don't really have a firm sense of how that fits into the whole they get really frustrated and sort of like the whole system of communication breaks down. And I guess they're fine with it because, you know, they're working for an extremely famous animation director. And, you know, the fact that they're working on that film is basically going to like establish their bona fides in perpetuity, but they get really pissed off with him. And like, it's actually kind of astounding that they let the documentary filmmakers actually record that, but it's a similar problem in video game design where like, if you're not actively communicating both bottom up, top down, or even just laterally, then you might produce something that in a microcosm feels really good, looks really good, works really good. But the second you try to plug that into the whole game, it's like, well, what the hell is this? Yeah. And I think that the direction, like communication, and a lot of it like comes right down to the DNA of what the core game problem or product is going to be, right? Like yeah. what's that opportunity that it's trying to serve? Because that's kind of what we talk about in genetics is you just can't splice two DNAs together and always get like a perfect chimera. Yeah. Like if that was possible, we would have chimeras running around all the time, <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is that some DNA just doesn't work together. Yeah. And you can be the lone isolating director that like sees the DNA that doesn't fit and just goes, no, give me another one. Right. Which is kind of what it seems like they were doing in the documentary. Yeah. You can have other directors that control it so much that they are consistently telling you what the direction is, but it actually isn't having like say foundations in reality. Yeah, yeah. Like yeah. they don't really tell you how exactly it all fits together. That when they put the DNA together, it actually doesn't look good. Yeah. And so you're trying to be like, uh, that's not actually a playable game. Uh, and we should probably change it. And they're like, no, no, no. This is my cut and paste spliced baby. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and you're like, uh, that is, um, that is and that, and that's, an alchemist and we should put it out of its misery. And that's the bottom up communication. The bottom yeah. up communication. You have to listen to the people who are talking to you from below because they're the ones who are actually going to have to try and execute this vision. They're the ones who are going to have to yeah. do the mechanical tasks that are really very important to the, like the final product yeah so let's and let's also like so from a triple a standpoint in like a practical thing let's kind of look at what like an ideal i don't want to talk about like an ideal world but let's look at like an example of what an ideal communication structure and production methodology would be right yeah. and i think that it's important to also maybe wrap up with this ideal because when we talk about departments yeah. there is going to be an r in animation a design department yeah yeah right and a lot of the weight does fall on the design department being a bunch of game designers, right? Because a lot of people need direction and a lot of that direction sometimes does come from design, yeah. right? But if an animator isn't critically thinking about their own work and realizing that the designer has asked for something that isn't going to work, right? Yeah. As an animator, and you know that as an animator, you know that if you do that work, even if it's really well executed, it's not going to fit. You're going to yeah. have to redo that work, which that's where the grind comes in. It's always coming back to zero. So I I want to briefly just talk about prototyping yeah. really quickly because that to me in that mindset is kind of the ideal where the grind happens when hapless level designer takes a level from start to finish and then never looks at that level again throughout the entire say development cycle of a game, right? Which would could be six months, it could be six years, right? But they're always going back to zero. So they start with one level and they don't understand how it fits into the larger game. Yeah. Right. And then they go to one level and then they go to level two and they never look at level one again or, or whatever. Right. That's yeah. one method of production where you're just producing asset, 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 asset. Yeah. 
And then you just keep doing that. And then at the end, you have a game. And then well, once you, have you a sit game. down. I have giant scarecrows here, game. <laughs> I have a game. <laughs> yeah. And then once all those assets come together, you realize, okay, now we need to polish what we have. This is kind of like the old methodology, right? Yeah. But now you realize, wait, level one doesn't really fit with level 15. Wait, level 16 is using a mechanic that isn't introduced until level 20. Okay, yeah. let's just cut, cut and paste all these levels around. Yeah, yeah. Right? Oh, God, you're probably scrambling. <laughs> now, because you also need to polish, right? Yeah, and you yeah, realize, yeah. what if we created, this is a never-ending train. Now we have to crunch to get it out the door. Whew, okay, we got it out the door. Let's start the whole process over again to create another <laughs> game, right? Yeah, exactly. That's, that's not, that's the, that was an old way. That was really the way games were made. Yeah. Let's look at this in a different, in a, in an ideal way where say everyone's communicating and you have compartmentalization. You have someone working on weapons and someone working on characters for your, this first person game in the, in our podcast example. Right. Yeah. And then you have someone else working on environments. You have something else working on the levels, right? Yeah. Someone comes in as an object designer and they're like, I'm making destructible terrain. And someone on that core combat with weapons is like, actually, now we have parkour, right? To like Nicholas's thing. Yeah, yeah. Everyone is talking together. And instead of trying to make one sequence of content and another sequence of content, everyone goes, hey, wait a second. We added destructible terrain um, in our environment. And we actually have a weapon that like goes through terrain and yeah. doesn't destroy it, but it like, you know, creates doorways. Passes, yeah. Oh, it creates passes. Hey, level design team. We did this thing. We know that you've been working equally on, say, 10 different sequences we're going to have in this game. And they're all like at about 10, 20 percent. Where do you think that this would fit? Oh, this would fit right in levels like five through 16. And then we should cut it out of the end game because that's when the weapon designer said we're going to do this giant boss. I don't yeah. know. This is a, a crazy single player game, I guess, or whatever. <laughs> and so I think that in that milieu, right, everything's being built up. Yeah. at quality to the same level of quality. So well, and I think the other thing that you're not quite identifying, but it's in there and what you're saying is that like the communication, like the constant, consistent community. And it's not just like telling someone what's going on. It's really more a form of socialization because like, it's not just about saying like, here's what we're going to do. Go do it. It's that like you and the other people who are maybe in working on aspects of the game that you have no relationship to, you're working through it together. You're seeing like, let's say, because you could imagine a system where it like, like, let's say we're prototyping. Let, let's say like our first models, milestone is we're going to like create a workable prototype of the game. And like you get to that point, like everybody has thrown all their stuff together. The game magically compiles and you're like, hooray. And then let's say in sort of like the old design process where I say like, you know, someone, you know, the higher ups and the hierarchy look at it and go, yeah, the prototype wasn't go great. So they go back and they tell their underlings what to do. A much better way to approach that would be to have everybody experience that prototype together, communicate with each other as they're experiencing. And again, this is a social process and to see what other people are thinking as they're thinking it. So that way, when you go back and you work on your piece, you can remember like, you know, I talked to Gary or I talked to Chow or I talked to Jane or I talked to like Amir. And I remember that what they said about this, like you already have their thoughts in your head, but you can't do that like through like this sort of modular production process. It has to be like intentionally socialized. Yeah, and I like the way that you're saying socialized because that's something that an academic would say. 
And honestly, in, in my, like, I wouldn't even think to consider it social because to me, I'd be like, look, you're finally like communicating and it's collaborative, right? Like yeah. that's the word that's thrown around, I guess, in the industry is that it's like actually collaborative and creative and kind of open. Yeah. But honestly, it is. It's very social. It's very directive and it's a lot more personable, right? Yeah. Because it's not something where the old method of hierarchy and someone being a director, like a dictator, right? Exactly, yeah. Actually, that's better. Someone being a dictator, yeah. I think, is what we've gotten in a lot of in, in our industries, where someone comes in, has a vision, has a creative like streak, makes one really great big game hit, and then regardless of who they are as a person, right now is a dictating, right? What needs to happen? They dictate to software, which is people, and they treat people like little minions, right? That go yeah, out yeah. and do their dictation. Yep. And when, you know, if you're to dictate, right, means to say something and then, you know, Siri could be writing it for you, right? Yeah, yeah, if yeah. Siri autocorrects or isn't translating your words correctly, now it's Siri's fault, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think that your method of saying that it's social, right, is so much better because if you wouldn't like, you wouldn't dictate to people, right? You're not a dictator. You yeah. are a director, right? You're like, hey, the vision for this is this first person shooter parkour destructible. <laughs> I know. I realize I made a really complicated game. <laughs> it's a super complicated game because it's basically Battlefield One, but plus Assassin plus Mirror's Edge. Yeah, okay? basically. It's, yeah. it's Battlefield's Edge. Yeah, Battlefield's and... Edge. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay, I got it. <laughs> it's, it's Battlefield's Edge, right? And. Honestly, that'd be a hell of a That'd actually game. be a really like, great game. Somebody should make great. that game. <laughs> Someone wants to make that game, make it. Uh, hire us. <laughs> yeah, first pay English, us. First really. pay us. Then we'll make it. <laughs> uh, we will consult uh, and play that game. Um, no, but you're making Battlefield's Edge. And instead of di like dictating what that experience should be, you're yeah. just directing that, hey, we're making Battlefield's Edge. Everyone come together. This is the vision. Yeah. Right. And like, that's the ideal where now it's you empower the people. Right. It's not about like commanding and dictating what people do. Right. It's about directing and empowering. Right. The individuals to kind of build right battlefield's edge to what they're thinking that it is. Yeah, and it reminds me of something that um, friend of the pod, um, Masao Kobayashi, who was also on a previous episode said, which is that like you can teach somebody the technical skills that they need in order to design a game, but you can't teach them to be a decent human being and the decent human being is really the important part because i mean think about it just like from your own perspective like if you feel isolated if you feel secluded from everyone else and the feedback you're getting is contradictory like that can be really demoralizing and you're not going to want to do your best work and you're just going to get by until three years later your contract is up and you go to another studio where maybe they're not going to treat you like crap whereas if you have a good personal, you don't even necessarily have to like have all the people you work with be your friends, but it does feel good when say like, say someone in a completely unrelated department sees something that you did and they like change what they're doing in order to better suit what you're doing. You're like, Hey, they did this for me. I will do this for them. And you work better with each other. You're more simpatico because of the way in which like the whole production process has socialized you rather than sort of like put you in your little box. Yep. I love that. <laughs> and I think that we should end on those words because it is absolutely true that you can teach game design and you can teach 
the technical skill of getting something done or getting something on the screen. Yeah. But you cannot teach what it is like to, I mean, be a decent human being, but you cannot teach the soft skill, right, of just being decent, of collaborating with others, and of getting the work on screen to actually be good quality and something meaningful. Mm-hmm.